0: This podcast is brought to you by Business Radio, powered by Wharton. You're listening to Dollars and Change on Business Radio, powered by the Wharton
1: School, Sirius XM 111. Welcome back. This is Catherine Klein on Dollars and Change, and I'm Sandy Hunt. Thanks for being with us. Thanks for being with us. It'll be uh, you know, time is flying by. Uh, good morning. Hope it's, hope hope traffic is is uh, for those of you who are driving. The traffic is moving. We know we're having trouble here in, in Philadelphia. Yes, indeed. Yeah, yeah. So uh, we've had some great conversations, and I'm looking forward to our next segment coming up right now with Ed Markham, who is the managing director of Humanity United. So, uh, we, you know, we're going to just have a conversation about investing, supply chains, and, and human trafficking. So what is the role in business in, in preventing human trafficking? I've got to say this is a, you know, a good example of the kind of innovation that we see in social impact. We would have thought, you know, uh, human trafficking, that's a regulation problem. That's mm-hmm. a government problem. Maybe nonprofits can make a difference. Uh, Ed's going to talk with us about the, the role of business. So without further ado, Ed, welcome to the program.
2: Yeah, thanks for having me. Great. Pleasure to be here.
1: Great to have you with us. Uh, For our listeners who are not so familiar with Humanity United, describe this to us. You're a nonprofit organization. How should we understand what Humanity United is and does?
2: Yeah, Humanity United, it's a private foundation started by eBay founder Pierre Omidyar and his wife, Pam, um, that focuses specifically on a number of different human rights-related issues. So they have a variety of different philanthropic entities, each has its particular focus um, and Humanity United is their sort of the human rights division. Um, and since inception, we've worked across a number of different human rights related issues, but have a particular focus on issues of forced labor, human trafficking, um, you know, severe forms of labor exploitation. And um, within Humanity United, I oversee a body of work that looks at trying to address forced labor within the supply chains of multinational corporations.
1: So, Ed. At- you know, I think that human trafficking is a term that people hear and think, oh, yeah, I kind of know what that is. Sort of like mass incarceration. Okay, mm-hmm. I sort of know what that is. But when you dig into these topics, when you, you know, and we have the opportunity to, to connect with an expert, you can learn so much about, like, what are we actually, what are we actually talking about? What is human trafficking? Why is this a concern? Um, so let's move a little bit beyond the, oh, yeah, of course, to dig into what's the problem here?
2: I mean, I think the problem is that millions of people um, continue to find themselves in situations of severe exploitation and, um, you know, that exploitation can run across a continuum. Obviously, there's there's sort of sex trafficking and sexual exploitation. Um, And then there's exploitation within the the sort of labor trafficking space and within the workforce. Um, You know, again, we have a variety of different um, practices within Humanity United. Um, and my focus is really more on what would be labor trafficking. And so maybe I can speak more specifically yeah. to
1: yeah. what are the
2: vulnerabilities you what, see in, in that situation. What I is think, labor trafficking? Know, yeah. And so um, you know, I think if you, if you look um, across societies, basically, um, you know, you have vulnerability. Um, you've got uh, huge swaths of, of the population that are living below $2 a day. Um, often it can be gender, migrant status, um, caste, uh, poverty, et cetera, a number of drivers that create vulnerability. Um, and, and within that context, then, there are um, you know, sort of systemic processes that, that often take advantage of, of, of labor um, to the point where you're often essentially forced to work, um, whether that's through explicit threats um, of violence and/or through you know debt bondage or other 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 levers that basically make it impossible for you to to leave a particular work setting.
3: So um, so and so think, a,
1: you know, let me give an example because I think it may be helpful and uh, you know that comes to mind as you describe this and uh, you know I'm guessing this was a uh, you know, borderline it was likely to be um, you know labor trafficking human trafficking was yep. almost a, so uh, I've done a lot of work in Rwanda and I've okay. you know be, kind of become a mentor to some young women these were uh, some years ago these were young women who are graduating from a women's college lots of vocational training uh, it's a, a very impressive institution called the Akila Institute and I was close to these uh, these two young women and kind of supporting them in their march out of poverty and empowerment Uh so I get an email from them. You know, I'm asking them, what are you going to do after you graduate? I get an email, there's this great hotel that wants to hire us in London. They're going to pay us so much money. It's really exciting. We're going to live in London, yeah. and we're going to be hired by this hotel. Don't tell anyone at Aquila that this is happening. Don't, you know, don't convey this information to the yeah. leaders of the school. And it was that combination of great opportunity in, in London and don't tell others. That just was a real red flag for me. Huh. And I said, wow. yeah, you know, and, and I said to them, don't take this. You know, don't take this. This is too dangerous. You know, I absolutely am going to tell other people, the leadership of Aquila that this is happening. Um, because, you know, my guess is they would have been hired and they would have been seriously, you know, found themselves Rwandan, no network, you know, working in who knows what industry uh, in London, no money. Pretty, you know, and incredibly vulnerable, right? No way to to say, okay, I quit and I'm out of here. So that yeah. thats that that what is that what we're talking about? Is that a good example?
2: Yeah, I think um, you know, particularly with respect to migrant labor, um, there really is again systemic risks that, that cut across geographies, that cut across industries, for example. And so too often, migrant workers, in many cases, doesn't sound like this is the case necessarily of the people that you are, um, that you know in Rwanda. Um, but very often, actually, workers will pay to acquire a job. Um, there are often very unscrupulous labor agents and recruiters in that process yep um, who then begin to charge predatory interest rates on top of that th- that debt um, they 'll end up in a destination country there 's a little bit of contract substitution as it were, whereby the terms of of the work and or in some cases even the place that they thought they were going to be employed doesn 't exist right um, and then they 're often forced to work there you know again in a foreign country, often they're not unaware of what their rights are as migrants, often their passports are confiscated. Um, And so they're forced to work sometimes two, three years, in in some cases on on unofficial contracts, in other cases. Um, there really isn 't even a contract in place and 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 they 're um, you know they 're highly vulnerable and at the whims of whoever it is that brought them to to that particular uh situation so where, does
1: um, so it 's easy I would imagine uh folks listening to you and uh, and we 're talking with Ed Markham, managing director of Humanity United, folks who are joining us listening in may think not in the United States, yeah, this is a problem. I get this, this is serious, this is problematic. You know, we do not want any situations where uh, where people are essentially enslaved and uh, for you know yeah. in bondage for years, maybe their lifetime. That doesn't happen in the United States. Um, hmm. Is that true that it doesn't happen in the United States? I have heard of stories of where it does happen in the United States. To what extent is, is human trafficking an issue in the United States?
2: I mean, it, it absolutely still happens in the United States. It certainly doesn't happen at the scale it may in other parts of the world, Um, you know, again, where I think poverty can be in particular a driver of vulnerability that Mm -hmm. makes the exploitation at at mass scale a a little bit of a different proposition. But, um, you know, again, differentiating between sex trafficking, where there is a a vibrant sex trafficking industry within the United States, and then labor trafficking, where I think in particular, when you look at the agricultural sector and migrant farm workers, uh, many of the same phenomena that I just discussed around paying to acquire a job, ending up, you know, in a destination country um, with work terms um, and/or particular labor agents, unscrupulous labor agents who are um, maybe even not necessarily—they often serve as middlemen. So, you know, even if if farmers are are paying the middlemen, the middlemen maybe not necessarily paying the workers um, the amount of money they should they should be getting. Um, again, they often are in debt, um, so they're highly vulnerable. They're typically here on contracts, um, and some of, some of those contracts are very difficult to get get out of. They're They're fearful of leaving their their employment because of their migratory status. Um, so y- yes, this is something that does take place at scales. And as I said, it, really, it often depends on the industry, but I think there are certain sectors. Um, and agriculture would be, I think, chief among them where where there, there is severe exploitation like this that does continue to occur.
0: And so one of the more recent um, activities at Humanity United has been the launch of this working capital fund. Can you tell our listeners what this is and why it's unique?
2: Yeah, it's, so it's a new early-stage $23 million venture fund, and it's basically built on the investment thesis or premise that there are many businesses that want to do a better job of understanding if, where, how, essentially, labor exploitation is occurring within their supply chain, and not just in the first tier of their supply chain, but often all the way down to the bottom of their supply chain at the commodity level, where you know things like inputs like cocoa or palm mm-hmm. oil and or seafood, um, you know, may be entering into their supply chain with with forced labor or tainted by forced labor, essentially. And um, so we believe that there's growing demand from business to have visibility into labor conditions deep in their supply chain. Sure, because I I think for a lot of these
0: folks, it's, you know, it's not that they would, you know, not want to avoid those practices, but historically has been very difficult to trace to that level or very expensive and labor-intensive to do so.
2: Yeah. So how is... so we look at the, at the toolkit that currently is available to them. So you've got you know, voluntary supplier codes of conduct, which are voluntary, often very difficult to enforce. Theoretically, mm-hmm. they're supposed to cascade down the supply chain. Yeah. Um, but as I said, they're often unenforced. There are social audits, which are important, but they're a snapshot in time every year, two years. Often, you know, employees can be gamed and coached in terms of how to respond to some of the, the questions that are asked to them. So often they don't really tell you that much about labor conditions. Um, And so we started to see a number of really innovative, primarily technology platforms that allow for uh, companies to have better visibility into what's going on in their supply chain and felt like um, there was an opportunity to perhaps build out a suite of tools that would allow those well-intentioned businesses that wanted to do more um, to be able, in a cost-effective and scalable way, to have have a better sense of of what was taking place within their supply chain uh, in terms of labor rights.
1: So this this working capital fund, uh, part of Humanity United, is investing in uh, investing in startups that yep. uh, are you know uh, that startups that have products and services that might illuminate human trafficking in the supply chain and allow a corporation to say, you know what, that's not how we're going to you know get our supplies. That's not the cocoa we're going to buy that's not the you know the fabric that we're going to purchase what what kinds of companies are you you know learning about what kinds of companies are you investing in
2: yeah there are a number of of different sort of product categories that we think are particularly interesting so one would be worker voice or worker empowerment platforms so now that you've got ubiquitous penetration of cell phones and increasingly of smartphones there are a number of for-profit entities that are trying to allow for real-time anonymous feedback from workers in any given working condition, which we feel like is a significant upgrade over the social audit, where you get that snapshot every year or two years. Now, all of a sudden, if there is a health and safety risk on a factory floor, if workers haven't been paid for three weeks, et cetera, you can know that in real time, and you can intervene and remediate quickly. Um, And um, there have been a number of startups that have entered into this space and, um, you know, we think that there are actually some business models and some scalable platforms there that could, in fact, again, begin to integrate their way into corporate practice in a more mainstream way um, as something that would either replace or at least augment social audits. Um, another interesting area that we've, we've looked at um, has to do with recruitment, as we were talking about earlier, which is um, given that there are so many unethical recruiters, um, can there be ethical recruitment models that don't charge workers, that don't confiscate passports? How can you begin to differentiate some of those actors, the good from the bad, um, and you know, really address, I think, a variety of things that would help business, which is, one, obviously, protect them from reputational risk, um, but also, you know, hopefully, drive better productivity and less turnover if the workers who are in their supply chain are being treated well. And so we started to see a number of ethical recruiters who are vertically integrated. Often they'll sort of have chain of custody from from employees from the village level all the way through to, in some cases, managing on the factory floor. Um, and they're they're a little bit more expensive, but again, there may be some gains in productivity. Certainly, they address reputational risk because so that's an area that we're we're interested in. Um, we see risk assessment tools and the use of big data analytics and machine learning and artificial intelligence as something that also can allow particularly people who are in situations or in positions of ethical procurement um, uh, to be able to better identify where they have real risk in their supply chain. So um, too often you'll have tens of thousands, even in some cases hundreds of thousands of subcontractors in your supply chain. It's a little bit overwhelming to know where your risk comes from. And we're starting to see tools that can use big data and begin to identify and correlate certain data points in ways that would tell you, hey, there's a specific vendor in your supply chain that perhaps had a problem with Foreign Corrupt Practices Act, which we're not saying necessarily means they're guilty of trafficking, but it means that as you're doing your diligence and you're taking your limited resources, that's probably where you might want to do a deeper dive. And Um, and that... Okay, sure.
1: So I, uh, um, I want to just let our listeners know that we're talking with Ed Mar- Markham, Managing Director at Humanity United, and we have a, a call. Uh, Barry from Atlanta is on the line with some questions about the role of government in, in uh, stopping human trafficking. Barry, welcome to, the, uh, welcome to the show. What's your question or comment?
3: Uh, yeah, it was just that I wanted to see what your guest um, is doing with the government. Uh, you know, obviously there are rules, regulation, laws, policies, all kinds of things. And, and this problem doesn't just exist in rogue states, right? It's just across the board, first world, third world. So why, how come these things go on under the watch quote-unquote watchful eyes of the governments? You know, like, oh, why isn't there So more b- there?
1: Before we pass this to Ed, I'm curious, uh, you know, what your view is. Is it your view that, hey, we absolutely need uh, investors in these kinds of platforms, these new businesses to solve this problem because government won't? Or is your view like, hey, government's pretty strong. We should just push government to do more? What, what do you think?
3: Uh, no, I'm saying what is the... Um, what, why aren't governments, because they can take swift and uh, very deterministic action against these things because they have the resources and wherewithal. Why does this go on? Obviously, like even in the United States, some subsidized stuff goes on, and, you know, with the immigration and this and that, exploitation, you know, farm workers whatnot. So wh- how come these things are allowed to go on? and it's like a wink and a nod, or is mm. there money exchanging, money exchanging hands under the tables and this and that? I'm, I'm just wondering, you know, like, how culpable is the government, or the governments in these type of, uh, you know, thing for these type of things to go yeah. on. Yeah,
1: yeah. Uh, Ed, what's your response to, to Barry's question? I mean, I think
2: corruption certainly can play a factor, um, unquestionably, and obviously you don't want to generalize, and that varies by, by in, by context, by geography, etc. Um, I think there, there is um, a bigger question with respect to responsibility for these issues. And um, in 2011, the UN came out with the UN principles on, on business and human rights guiding principles um, and uh, developed by a man by the name of John Ruggie, they're often referred to as the Ruggie principles. And they begin to start to delineate um, responsibilities between you know the, the business sector, the governmental sector, the NGO sector, um, and ultimately you know I think that the you know it's clear that there's no single sector, there's no single actor who can um, solve this problem on their own, um, and it requires collective action. Certainly, there need to be strong laws on the books in certain contexts in certain countries, um, and then those those laws need to be enforced. And, and there is corruption you know within government, there's corruption often within law enforcement. Um, that um, then allows for um, even strong legisl- legislation and strong policies to be ignored. Um, so un- unquestionably, that, that is part of the problem. And I think you know within our work at Human United, we recognize that there is this requirement for collective action. Um, one piece of the puzzle, though, that we you know we also believe can be addressed independently is what business does to try to address the problem. And. Um, not that they are solely responsible, but if you look at their practice, they could be doing more. And that's, I think, when you look at the, the rollout and launch of working capital, um, what we hope our contribution is going to be, which is to say um, this is not a substitute for you know, good policy and good enforcement of policy within certain contexts, um, but it is something that can um, – on its own and independently, drive better practice and mitigate risk for millions of workers. Right,
1: right. Barry. Thanks for your call, and and uh, Ed, thanks for that thoughtful answer. So, Ed, I'm curious when you, you know, as you're thinking about
0: growing, launching, assisting these uh, different solutions for transparency, is you know why are you seeing businesses demand these tools? What's what's driving them? Is it that uh, litigation's increasing? That customers are um, you know, demanding more transparency? Is it that they feel it's the right thing to do? What's, what's really driving these businesses?
2: Yeah, I think it's a confluence of a number of trends, many of which you mentioned. I mean, I guess the, I'd start with, with policy. I think there's actually been a number of very influential and catalytic policies that have emerged over the last several years that have forced business to pay more attention to this issue. <laughs> uh, starting with California, the California Transparency and Supply Chain Act seven years ago, Um, which forced any company that had over $100 million worth of of revenue that was a manufacturer, retailer, and broadly defined was doing business in California, they were forced to disclose what steps they took to mitigate risks of trafficking in their operation in seven different categories. Um, And that legislation was flawed in large part because um, they were unwilling to announce which companies were subject to the law because it was based on confidential tax ID information. But Having said that, then you've seen the U.K. Modern Slavery Act emerge over the last several years. Australia has passed transparency legislation. France has passed transparency legislation and disclosure legislation. So basically regardless of you know, the jurisdiction that you're operating in now, you're required to disclose what steps you take to mitigate risks of trafficking. Got it. So um, policy is one. Policy is one, certainly. Um, I think public awareness of this issue has increased dramatically over the last several years, and, and that's a function, I think, of both a stronger NGO sector – Um, But also some really influential investigative reporting, you know, in certain contexts, for example, um, in the context of Thailand and the seafood sector, the Guardian broke a number of really critical stories that linked tainted supply of seafood to the supply chains of Walmart, Costco, Morrison's, et cetera. Um, And that really focused the minds of of the actors in that sector. And you've seen real movement and attention paid to that. And that also, also touched the supply chains of food and beverage companies, the Nestle's of the world, et cetera. Um, you know, whether it's you know, there's construction in the Gulf has also received a lot of, um, of, of notoriety, particularly ahead of the World Cup coming up in, in Qatar, where really severe exploitation has occurred. A number of, you know, young, very able-bodied young men have died um, under, under, you know, really horrendous working conditions, essentially, and that's been pretty well documented. Um, and so overall, I think just collectively, you look at palm oil, um seafood a number of commodities increasingly i think there's a there's a really strong evidence base that that this is a, a a problem that you know any company operating in those particular contexts or geographies needs to be aware of and needs to be taking steps to mitigate the risks of so i think all of these things have helped to drive um business to take the issue more seriously Obviously, reputational risk. I think you know the the consumer habits of, of particularly young consumers and millennials, who who are signaling, at a minimum, that they they care about the ethical production of goods and will actually vote with their wallets. Um, you know, I think that a lot of these things are are, are sort of combining to um, uh, sort of force business at a minimum to uh, to pay more attention to the
3: issue.
0: Are you are we actually seeing dollars move? And you know, we as a, an example of sort of what I'm I'm asking here, we um, do a lot of work around gender lens investing, and so we've you know seen data and heard stories about how women are more apt to invest with um, you know a social impact lens on their investments. But that mostly comes from surveys of women saying what they believe, what they would like to do, right. and we're not seeing yeah. all of those dollars actually flow. Yeah, you know. So I'm asking sort of the the corollary question, which is: Are you seeing dollars move based on business practices, are Mm -hmm. consumers just saying this is what they want, and companies acknowledging that there's reputational risk, or is this actually having a a capital impact?
2: Yeah, no, I think it's a it's a great question. I think there um, there's always an aspiration that that will happen. I I think there there is a lot of evidence that people say one thing and obviously do another thing and don't often actually vote with their wallets. Um, I have seen, you know, a few data points that suggest that, you know, again, this younger generation is going to care more and and they will, in fact, um, you know, move from sort of talk to action, essentially. But I don't I don't I'm not aware of of specific data that shows that, um, you know, some of those habits are actually changing.
1: Ed, I'd like to switch gears a little bit. Um, you are, as we, as we said, the managing director at Humanity United, and you right. know this current role that you've got is a pretty fascinating role with deep expertise around a you know a, a major complex international social issue around human trafficking, and and really workforce conditions. And you're bringing you know and, and you're managing a fund and thinking about investments investment returns attracting uh, you know attracting investors how, tell us a little bit about your past how did you how did you get from uh, from Wharton as a, as a Wharton alum to, to this role
2: Yeah I mean I, I actually was managing a nonprofit before I went to Wharton and um, so I've always been driven to sort of social impact oriented work and um, my intention was to go back to the nonprofit sector and, and, and continue to, to lead an organization, um, which I did right after graduation, um, but then had the opportunity relatively early on to be one of the founding members of Humanity United when it was uh, a mere initiative within something called Omidyar Network, which is a, a larger philanthropic entity that the Omidyar family had started. And so I was the, the, the third employee and the first imp- programmatic employee at Humanity United over a decade ago. And over that time, you know, had the opportunity to help build the institution, work across uh, a variety of different really compelling uh, yet challenging issues. I mean, we we have a particular focus on trying to address some of the most intractable human rights problems that exist on the planet, um, including issues of, you know, prevention of of genocide and atrocities and and conflict prevention in certain contexts, etc. So um, have worked across a variety of those different different portfolios over, over my time there. Um, but then for the last six and a half, seven years, have been working specifically on issues of forced labor and, and forced labor and supply chains. Fascinating.
0: And I know that, you know, Humanity United broadly works in a number, you know, focusing on a number of, of social issues, including your expertise around sort of labor tra- trafficking. Is this, you know, funding innovation a model that has worked in other sectors that you're, you know, um, eager to bring to labor trafficking? Or is it, is it a, a sort of a pilot exercise for Humanity United to put together a fund to combat these issues?
2: I, mean, I think it's certainly um, a, a novel concept in and in a, in a, in a, in a different orientation. So, uh, you know, throughout um, sort of the inception of Humanity United and, and really based on the broader ecosystem of what's called the Omidyar Group, a variety of different entities that that, that do different work. Uh, there's always been a commitment to impact investing. So, um, you know, a very flexible capital approach to trying to to address social issues, whether that be using philanthropic capital, um, debt capital in some contexts, and or equity, um, really depending on what you're trying to achieve and whether that particular mechanism or tool is going to be able to best help you achieve those results. Um, and I think that's very, very, um, you know, sort of uh, apropos for what we're trying to do as well. There's there's sort of grant capital that we can use to spur some of these innovations. But ultimately, we think that many of the innovations are out there and exist. And what what's needed now is for them to be able to scale to the point where they begin to mainstream into the way that corporations do diligence on human rights and labor rights. Um, and so, you know, I think we thought, you know, the, the best way to provide capital that will provide Professionalism, you know, scale, sustainability over time is going to be for-profit capital, and it also allows us to be a bit more hands-on than, than we can be with philanthropic capital, where we can actually take board seats in some of these startup companies, mm. etc. Um, so, uh, you yeah, know, in terms of, of, of sort of using um, venture capital for innovation, that's something that um, the family has done, and, and and we will continue to do in terms of. The, the specific focus of, of us having a fund, I think that's that's novel um, in, in a number of ways. So we are, um, in some ways, have a somewhat commercial structure. So we have a, it's a ten-year term fund where the Omidyar family has put in, you know, some 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 capital initially, so five million dollars into what is a twenty-three million dollar fund. Um, but then we went out to limited partners, and we went out in particular with to limited partners from industry. So. Um, we've got limited partners in our fund that include Walmart, Disney, CNA, the clothing company. Um, so, what our, our goal there was to say hey, if business is on the front lines of dealing with these problems, can we get them to put some skin in the game to both serve as a sounding board? So, when we're looking at new innovations, can we share some of the deal flow that we have with them and see if these are things that would actually help them in their job? Um, and then, as some of our portfolio companies begin to scale and professionalize, um, there's a good opportunity to do some matchmaking there, and see if we can get some of those companies to actually begin to contract with our portfolio.
1: Uh, thanks so much, Ed. We need to take a break. We've been talking with Ed Markham, managing director of Humanity United. Fascinating conversation, and you know, we wish you great success with this. We'll be very interested to see how this fund's going, what kind of impact and returns you're creating over the next several years.